here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate, London for episode 51 of Blockchain Insider, this weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you, Ethereum might not be a security after all, the EOS scrutiny continues and has Bitcoin come untethered? I'm not alone today, however. I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, GSAS himself, Colin G. Platt. Are you near a field and how are you? Well, obviously I'm not near a field, Simon. I'm sitting right next to you. (laughs) We could be near a field. Well, London fields, right? Yeah. We always use that joke whenever I'm here, though. (laughs) Yeah, no, but I'm going to wear it out. I am going to wear the joke into the ground. God damn it. Into the field? No, (laughs) I'm going to plant some stuff there, right? Um, You've been at the BAI conference. How was that? That was very interesting. I, I dragged our poor production crew and, and good old Petrit along, and I think I petrified him. Yeah. Uh, but we had a great did, time. Did you just make a pun out of Petrit's name? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe. What I was really disappointed with is at this conference with all these people with too much money that are investing in these things, and I was rocking my Centra shirt, and only like two or three people picked up on it, which is really fucking scary. Centra, of course, being the only ICO to have been arrested, uh, where the founders of the ICO were arrested. Is that right? Only one? I mean, it, it's definitely one of the more high-profile ones. High profile arrests from they thought they were fleeing the country but they were going to a conference or they something. were coming to the economy to present and that's where i got the shirt <laughs> love that all right um before we get started just a quick word for our sponsors today's episode of blockchain insider is brought to you by r3 and colin g platt gsas himself uh r3 are working with over 200 financial institutions regulators trade associations professional services firms and technology companies to develop on quarter its open source blockchain platform is designed specifically for business Coder is the outcome of over two years of intense research and development by R3 and its members. It meets the highest standards for the financial services industry, yet is applicable to any commercial scenario. It records, manages, and executes institutions' financial agreements in perfect synchrony. Uh-huh. I think there's a song there. I'm not um, singing. Go on, sing for me. Go on, sing. Creating a world of frictionless commerce, and it's open source. Uh, Coder's a blockchain for every business, and head over to r3.com to find out more. Also, we're not going to cover it in today's news, but I saw that the B3i Insurance Consortium are going to work with Corda, having moved from another platform to select them. So well done to those guys. I think LG was doing something as well with them. Yeah, indeed. Big big news on the uh, R3 front lately, for, for sure. Alrighty, that's the shout out to our sponsor, but we've got to get to the first story. The biggest news this week, we've picked it up from yahoo.com, um, but this is the SEC announcing the, the cryptocurrency Ether is probably not a security. This comes from a speech that the director for corporate finance, William Hinman, said at a, at a recent event in San Francisco, and he's classifying both Bitcoin and Ether probably not as securities in their current form. So I think the quote here is, can a digital asset originally sold in a securities offering eventually be sold in something other than a security? How about cases when there's no longer a company involved? I believe in those cases, the answer is a qualified yes. If a cryptocurrency network is sufficiently decentralized and purchasers no longer have expectation of managerial stewardship from a third party, a coin then is no longer a security. So the key word in that sentence is decentralized. I think the key word in that is qualified yes. I mean, people were briefly ecstatic. I think Ether was up for like 10% for a few hours, like right after this happened. Really, really, really important caveats on all this. This is not an official statement. This was somebody speaking at, I believe it was a Yahoo conference, mm-hmm. um, making a general comment about cryptocurrencies, including this one about how he viewed Ethereum. Now, let's bear in mind, he is not a judge. Mm-hmm. He's not even making an official policy statement that this is a view of the SEC. It may be, and it may be alluding to how they're thinking. And this decentralized thing, I think, is that important line of thinking that they're trying to get into to say, really, in the Howey test, I guess. This, and, this and that's enterprise. the key. Read out for me, or, or kind of recap for me. Why is it important if it is a security? Why is it important if it isn't? Um, maybe he would count some of Preston Burns' arguments. Okay, so a security is a specific thing. And if we kind of go back to the first principles of why these things are regulated, securities are, in one way, shape, or form, a tradable instrument that allows us to finance a company in general. Um, now, we can get way more complicated than that in the yeah, cryptocurrency last week, world. Amber Balde read out the Howey test. So there's a way to tell if it's a security. I'm going to make money out of the efforts of others, but actually, and with penny stocks and everything else, we've seen market abuses. Uh, Mom and pop tend to get ripped off with these things if we're not careful. Exactly. And so everybody's trying to go in this other thing, and now we've created this new test, I suppose. Let's call it a Dowie test. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly the is Dowie a test. The Dowie. It's a decentralized, type. right? Yeah, the Dowie test. Is it decentralized enough? It's interesting. I don't know what 
what a good measure of decentralization is, and I am pretty fucking sure that the SEC does not either. <laughs> well, so um, Coin Center uh, wrote a piece on you know the level of decentralization and why that's the key qualifying factor. Before we were often talking about utility. Is anybody actually using these things? Are consumers using these? So the, the classic example: I sell a load of cinema tickets for a cinema that I haven't built yet, but if you can use those cinema tickets at my other cinemas, then does it have utility? Therefore, is it a security? That was the argument. But actually, this argument's different. It's it's about decentralization. Okay. Yeah, this is like saying, how many cinemas do you have, right? And, yeah. And can I use it at, like, Michael's cinemas or pet cinemas? Like, yeah, that's kind of decentralized. But if you said, right, okay, so I'm going to make this ticket that you could use at Petrit Cinema if Petrit decides to ever build the cinema. However, I'm going to take in $50 million to build my cinema in case he wants to take it in the future. Mm. Is it decentralized in that case? I don't know. Well, I guess that's more of a question of, does it have utility in that case versus does it have decentralization? And actually, this decentralization is this this entirely new angle that hadn't really been part of the discourse. Dowie test, my friend. It is. So Balajay, who's the CTO of Coinbase and was the founder of Earn.com that got acquired and is also, I think, an A16Z partner, um, wrote a post, I think, in July of last year, so July 2017, quantifying decentralization, saying we must be able to measure blockchain decentralization before we can improve it. And he sort of said, how do we measure that? How do we determine the system modification improves or reduces uh, decentralization? The basic idea is to enumerate the essential subsystems, determine how many entities one would need, and then use the minimum of these as the measure of effective decentralization in the system. So there is some thinking out there, but it's interesting to me how early a lot of this stuff is. I would be surprised if the director for corporate finance for the SEC, whilst not making a policy judgment here, is, I'd be surprised if they've gone off piste. To your point, I think it's kind of speaking to the thinking that's going on and it's informative to the market one way or another. Well, yes, it is. And and, and just kind of hitting on Balaji's piece, uh, there's a website that I really like that was put up by the, the guy that founded Dogecoin. And it's called arewedecentralizedyet.com. And I've got it in front of me here. And he's got different things. He says, you know, like, what's the consensus mechanism, blah, 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 blah. Talks about some of the things that Balaji talks about, which is basically, what is the percentage of money, monetary supply held by top 100 accounts? Looking at Ethereum, it's 34%. Bitcoin's 19 Ripple's 81 though I know Ripple people challenge that and XRP fans challenge that. But I think really key in this is the number of entities to control 50% of the mining. In both Bitcoin and Ethereum, it's three entities. Yeah. Is that decentralized? And so this is the classic is, yeah, are we decentralized yet? Are all these things de facto centralized? Even though you, you can't claim one entity does, you can you claim one entity controls the correspondent banking system? Well, there are regulators for it, there are sovereigns, but it's, it's a global network of disconnected organizations that have come to agreement under the SWIFT organization. Does SWIFT control it? No, their members do. So like, the, there are these things that are arguably more decentralized than Bitcoin right now, but that are subject to securities laws. So like, it's in this really interesting space. Interesting, um, and we're going to keep watching it. Conspicuous by the absence, as you mentioned, uh, XRP, those letters have not passed any of the officials' lips in recent times, which may or may not indicate that you know either it's already considered a payment instrument and or their they're still not sure about the way forward on that one. But ambiguity is always uh, always worrying with these things. Ambiguity is a common theme in everything cryptocurrency, isn't it? It, it is. <laughs> and for lawyers. <laughs> Depends. <laughs> Next story from Reuters.com. Banks are apparently unlikely to process payments with distributed ledgers for right now, says Ripple. Uh, this was written by Anna Herrera. comes from an interview we love with... Anna. Yeah, shout out to Anna, who we had on a show a couple of weeks ago on our Money 2020 special. So this comes from an interview with David Schwartz, uh, who's obviously one of the original founders and has uh, has been, I think, their head cryptographer for quite some time. And he's now the CTO as well. Uh, yes, indeed, since uh, Stefan Thomas left. And the quote here is, I will concede we haven't gotten there yet. He did add, however, we hear from many of their customers that it's imperative to keep their transactions private, process thousands every second and accommodate every type of currency and asset imaginable. And they believe the Ripple approach is what enabled Ripple to move beyond just tests and start doing transactions at volume. It's this really interesting message of like, we're not there yet, but we think we're on the way. Which actually is quite, kind of a, it's different PR from Ripple. This is quite sober. And shout out to uh, David Schwartz. In any interaction I've ever had with the man, he's been very intellectually honest about the position of where they are and, and talked through the pros and cons. So, you know, and shout out to Anna Herrera for sort of 
taking the, these comments and you know just kind of running with them and sort of saying, look, we all kind of agree, even Ripple do, that then maybe not as far as some of the press releases might say, but actually that then makes you go, well, where are they then? And yes, they're doing real transaction volume, so you can start to acknowledge that okay, but it's it's coming and it's around the edges, and that's how PayPal started, right? PayPal was just this thing used by a few people on the internet for this thing called eBay that nobody used, and then suddenly it's one of the biggest payment companies in the world. Things can come from the edge. Yeah, I mean, I personally, and thanks everybody in advance for telling me it's going to be fun. I have questions about the economics of XRP. I think a lot of the stuff that Ripple, the company that's doing that does not involve XRP, is promising, though I do have lots of questions. That happens with, with startups. What I really do appreciate is when you compare to a lot of people who are bought in and have big financial interest in the coin, not in the company, in the coin, in XRP, and I'm not even going to talk about if there's a link, if there's not a link, I don't care. What's very interesting is how sober this analysis is and how they say we're not quite there yet. And I think that is a very positive sign to say we're trying to get better. Yeah. And this is what I'd like to see more and more from every company in this space. It's very, very adult. And then it's almost unfortunate that that happens in the same week that on Fortune.com, the Western Union CEO says that Ripple's XRP is apparently not making their transactions cheaper. And he said that they are always criticized that Western Union is, quote, not cost efficient, but we don't see that efficiency during their tests. He says the practical matter is that uh, using Ripple was still too expensive, noting that Western Union would only be interested in adopting XRP for payments if it proved that it could lower the company's costs. Interesting that I think they did about 10 transactions and so they didn't push a lot of volume through this. And it makes you question, you know, sort of were they using this at scale? What sort of timings were they using? Were their systems able to get the most out of it? And if not, you know, are other clients finding this? Um, and, and I guess this is the downside of going so public about, hey, we got this client, we got this client, and then the CEO comes out and said, yeah, it wasn't that great. Yeah, that that's not a great look. One of the, the main ideas where, where you want to use XRP, and I'll get into some of the other considerations in banking, but when you want to use this to move money, a lot of people argue that it's going to be a bridge currency, meaning like, mm -hmm. Simon, I've got US dollars, I want to send you pounds ultimately, let's use XRP as kind of that conveyance tool to move that value across the border, if you speak. You need to have a lot of liquidity, and I've got coin market cap sitting in front of me on the 19th of June. The most liquid pair is between XRP and JPY, and I'm only looking at fiat, so it's got a lot of non-fiat pairs like Bitcoin, USDT, Tether, I'll put into the non-fiat box, although we can... We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. The other one's KRW. So if you want to run this corridor between it, between both of those and the total XRP volume, moving in all pairs according to CoinMarketCap, and yes, it's not perfect, I know, is about one, one third of that. So if I want to move between those, yeah, we could make the argument that you could do it. However, a lot of people are out there billing this as, I can move this between more exotic pairs. I don't happen to see Malawi and Quacha on here. Actually, US dollar comes in at number seven with only 5.2%. And that's a really fucking big pair. If I can't get dollars into this thing, I'm really looking at, well, I can move money between yen and yuan. Personally, you know a lot more about payments. I can't imagine that's one of the worst corridors. It's not, but if you are a bank in that region that's a tier three bank, you, you the way you get between yen and one today is via the US dollar, and you work with one of the big US banks who know you have to work with one of the big US banks and price accordingly. Therefore, XRP suddenly seems like a, a bit of a better idea. So you can see arguments on both sides on this one. I, I do think for some of those uh, some of those corridors where you have tier three banks to tier three banks that have been clearing through the US dollar going directly using this as a bridge currency is a thesis that makes sense. But I wonder if something more like uh, you know, trading across two central banks' balance sheets might be more what they're looking for for managing the settlement and the, uh, the kind of the credit risk on, on either side of that transaction. So then I guess my question would be to proponents of, of XRP, wherever they are in their decentralized world, rather than out there talking about, you know, let's trial with a bank, wouldn't the best investment of your time and money be Let's get this into weird exchange pairs and let's push that volume up so that we can actually justifiably move money, not just between JPY, KRW, maybe US dollar, euro, but into like czar and South African rand, into all the South American currencies, all these really weird pairs. So we have that promise. I mean, isn't that the best investment of our time rather than harassing me for calling it FUD? Which I think is interesting because what you've done is pointed to an interesting business case that could grow the value of XRP, but also solve a real business case and a real problem. So actually, I think that's a positive suggestion even though you sound like fuck off you're actually saying well here's a great idea why not try this i'm gsas can it be both <laughs> <laughs>
Yes, it can. For you, Colin, it can be anything you want it to be. Speaking of people not having a great time at the moment, a story from the nextweb.com. Researchers continue to find vulnerabilities in, quote, this is their title, the $9 billion cryptocurrency EOS. Is that its coin market cap right now? Something like that, man. Wow, okay. Guido Vranken, the security researcher who won $120,000 in a bug bounty program, discovered another vulnerability in EOS. Of course, go back to episode 50 for the previous vulnerability. But more worryingly, it appears he's not the only one to have found new kinks in the network. He says that the new flaw he discovered has to do with unbounded recursion in the binarian WASM parsing. Wow, that was a complicated sentence, and I have no idea what that means. But for those unfamiliar... <laughs> Unbound recursion occurs when a function that calls itself from within enters an endless loop. So it's an infinite loop, basically, until the computer runs out of resources. So it's just, yeah, it's an infinite loop bug. Interesting that basic infinite loop bugs uh, are still happening there. I think it was Amber that pointed out last week that having your code out on GitHub doesn't mean that you've had well-reviewed code. It just means it's in the open. And I think sometimes people confuse in the open with well-researched. Battle-tested. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's going through battle-testing right now. Yeah, and I think Amber and, and several other researchers pointed out that, you know, even if these things have been out there for, for a while, it doesn't mean that uh, they're necessarily going to be battle-hardened. Sometimes they can be battle-weakened even. <laughs> so EOS uh, had lots of problems. I mean, th- we're talking about vulnerabilities. It also straight-up stopped for like six hours the other day. <laughs> like, No more EOS for you. <laughs> no more EOS. E, e over. Um, like, I wish them all the best luck in the world, but I, I think that they have a big uphill battle. And if you raised $4 billion and you now have more than doubled that... And you moved to Puerto Rico. And you moved to Puerto Rico, then you've got a lot that you need to answer for so you know good fucking luck yeah no i I think they've got the the war chest to do a a good job here i hope they do i hope they make the most of it i know they created a fund for some interesting projects i know it's a different kind of architecture it's considered a third gen platform uh let's see if they can do something with it and uh, we met some people from a fund that's investing was funded by eos and an interesting thing i found out about it and they didn't say it's private so i'm gonna say it and i won't say who it is is EOS invested in them, and they were allowed to invest in tokens built on EOS, but not in EOS, the currency itself. Huh. Which is, I mean, kind of makes sense, but at the same time, it's like, if you're not ready to eat your own dog food. Yeah. How about that? Okay. Maybe there's some legal reason for that. Who knows? That has ever stopped EOS or any other cryptocurrency before? Well, yeah. (laughs) Story from news.bitcoin.com. A new report blames Tether for Bitcoin's bull run. The report was called, Is Bitcoin Really Untethered? And the research paper, their authors have taken an algorithmic investigative approach using blockchain analysis to determine the extent to which timed releases of Tethers into the crypto ecosystem may have served as a tool for artificially inflating prices hashtag fake news uh i I don't believe it personally i mean i I, they put a lot of work into it and it's admirable uh really simple explanation of of what they're trying to argue is basically if you look at when a lot of tether was released the price of bitcoin went up Mm -hmm. (laughs) um you could also make the argument, and I think a lot of people have very validly made the argument, including people who are probably behind a good chunk of that Tether issuance, um, not Tether the company, but buyers of Tether have said, well, look, the biggest exchange is Bitfinex. Bitfinex will accept Tether. What's the quickest way to get money into Bitfinex? It's to send dollars to Tether. Tether's issued. It's in Bitfinex within an hour. You buy Bitcoin. So if you have got a client behind that, or if you want to take a position behind that, that's your only really fucking only option. And to the biggest liquid exchange at the time. Exactly. Because it, it's hard otherwise to, and they'll know where the, the accounts are for Bitfinex. And I'm not saying that it's perfectly clean, but that's how it gets in. So that's, this is kind of like the cause and effect of what might actually be legitimate economic activity. But I mean, if you go back to some of our episodes through, you know, episode 25 through 35, you know, the infamous blogger Bitfinex was calling out Tether and Bitfinex the exchange for all kinds of, you know, lacks of transparency, um, not being willing to do audits. They they have horrible PR around this, but from, from the best I can tell, nobody can ever prove material wrongdoing. And if you read some of the BitMEX blogs, which is the biggest derivatives exchange, there was somebody that does research there who went back and he actually identified where all of that money was in Puerto Rico. Like, mm-hmm. we know where the money is. Now, we can question whether that's the best place for it to be. <laughs> but it's real U.S. dollars held in a real, real account. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe. And that's not to say that Tether isn't instrumental in one way, shape, or form of pushing that up. And they make the argument, which I thought was incredibly odd, that this was the bearish case, that if Tether wasn't involved, Bitcoin would have peaked out at $10,000 last year. 
which is still above where it is today as we record. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that, that, I like the bearish case scenario. But actually, the um, the logic in this report states that um, purchases with Tether are timed to follow market downturns and result in sizable increases in Bitcoin prices. Such heavy Tether transactions associated with 50% plus meteoric rise of Bitcoin and 64% of other cryptocurrencies. But wouldn't it make sense that if your only way into the biggest exchanges is to buy a load of Tether, that loads of tether would accumulate before people bought an asset and if a lot of people bought an asset its price would increase when the price goes down generally you buy the fucking dip right (laughs) how do you buy the fucking dip with tether (laughs) yeah it's interesting that that this is what interests me is how much people really enjoy a bad news story about crypto people love conspiracies people love a conspiracy and actually some of the bad like we've been calling out some of the the bad behavior there but what's really interesting about the uh the bear market of the last six months is i mean we were talking only about the mature signals coming out of uh out of ripple the company the change in media messaging the real worries and difficulties that the eos community are having but they're doing it in public and that it's very honest and very sort of real it seems like we're moved into a build phase and a more sober phase which I, for one, welcome. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I went to a conference last week that was not a blockchain conference. Believe it or not, those exist. I did not know. Mm. And it, it was really funny because I contrasted the, the couple of blockchain-related things. And we saw this notion where we talk about, oh, yes, this glorification of building. But in every other technology, people just fucking build because they have to make money. Yeah. Or they have to raise Revenue, money. Yeah. And you need to show something. Like, I find it funny that it's become kind of a mini meme that we talk about buildle or whatever, the, however you pronounce it. That is the only way to deliver technology. And if you can't raise money off a white paper, you actually have to do work. Well, it, it's not building it. it. Like the biggest problem uh, risk in any product launch is not that we can build it. It's that will the customer care? Propositional risk is by far the biggest issue. And when we're dealing with clients at 11FS, like one of the ways we sell is to say, look, all the other companies in the world will help you build this product and ship it. Like we can do that too. We have some amazing engineers. We have some amazing talents. We can call in a Colin G. Platt if we need to. But the thing that's most important important is that we talk to customers and that we go through an analysis jobs to be done frameworks let's work with those customers let's research do quantitative and qualitative analysis and figure out like what is going to be the thing that they love what's the minimum lovable product that stuff is what really makes a difference i like that term oh we have t-shirts available on 11shop.com right now <laughs> I'm in not case you're kid- wondering we're also sponsored by 11 <laughs> I, I don't mean to go like house message but i really believe that like the biggest risk and, and so so as somebody who spends most of their time building fintech propositions for large financial incumbents, dealing with that message day in and day out, I look at this blockchain space and I can only really see like maybe Coinbase, maybe Richard Balance Wallet that are actually thinking beyond like, let's just build the thing for geeks and let's build a thing that people love and that they want to use. And I think that's really important. And I think the big key is there. It's not just, you know, building it's building smart right yeah the, the minimum lovable product is is really key other than kitties i mean who loves any of this stuff and even that people don't love as much anymore unfortunately yeah i think they're cute you think immutable marco is pretty cute which yeah. i agree <laughs> but you know damn cute whoever damn got cute. that was a genius um all right uh next story colin skycoin.net let's let um, this is all yours so this was from a blog post they put out on the 18th last night in china what happened? Skycoin was an ICO. They raised a bunch of money. Unfortunately for uh, some of the founders from Skycoin, they had their home invaded and their family was was tied up and they were burglarized for uh, approximately $200,000. Other Skycoins were, were stolen from the company when they, they cut off agreements with some of the, the other people working in the team. Uh, this really highlights some interesting things. And the first thing is you really, really need to protect these things. If you want to be your own bank, be ready for your own bank robberies. It's really, really unfortunate what happened because people were held against their will in their house and tortured for six hours to pull out $200,000 worth of these coins. The prices dropped significantly on the project, which we won't even talk about that aspect, but never tell anybody how many coins you have. And if you're doing an ICO, people will assume you have it. So hire bodyguards. Mm-hmm. At least Anthony Delorio figured it out. So there's a big push at the moment for, you know, don't forget about the non-custodial wallet. As everybody's building the custody solutions in crypto, as uh, Coinbase announced your Coinbase custody, Nomura doing custody with Ledger, we also have the wallets out there saying, don't forget about non-custodial wallets. You can be your own bank. This is the original dream. But the problem with being your own bank is being your own bank robbery victim. Like, this is this is a real challenge. And, like, we need to think again about that user experience solution where I can balance individual privacy 
privacy and have a, le- a level of security that's better than a bank because banks are pretty good at looking after money. Like, all right, they've, they didn't cover themselves in glory in the financial crisis, but like, what's the better solution? And I don't know that somebody's really got the answer to that other than becoming a massive crypto nerd. And again, this is what Amber pointed out last week is it's great to be a crypto nerd, but unless you're really good at OPSEC, then you can't use this stuff and you've got to be able to. But how do you do that if you're a company that goes out and you raise a market cap $35 million or whatever it was and I checked it earlier today? How do you do OPSEC around that? I mean, like, eventually they're going to be like, all right, let's just go down the paper. Or if we worked in the team, we know exactly who they are and say, right, we can hide all this from our team, from other people that have been involved, that know we raised $35 million. Yeah. And it's, it's incredibly transparent, right? I mean, it's out there on a public permissionless blockchain where everybody can see the transactions and the wallet addresses. So, like, you can figure out pretty quickly, like, okay, so the founders have 20% of this coin. There are these wallets that have a load of coin in them. Hmm. Like, you don't make... <laughs> I am quite happy to have somebody else be my bank. And that takes a lot of stuff off my, off my plate. And I don't have to worry about these things because I don't have these things. I don't want to tell everybody I have these things. It's stupid. I think the value proposition being be your own bank is actually one that doesn't stand up to the realities of human nature and where tech is right now. Unless we get amazing at zero-knowledge proofs, and even then, um, there's, there's a way to go. Uh, and, and shielded transactions and state channels and a lot of things that people point at. But I don't know that they're there yet, and the user experience is a long way from, from kind of being there. So... Have you, did you ever see there was like a Reddit blog post from years ago, years ago in blockchain, three or four years ago, where it was a time traveler from the future talked about this stuff. And basically, effectively, it was saying, right, this is 30 years in the future or something. Bitcoin doesn't even have a market value because it's killed the dollar. Mm. But like the theory is Bitcoins are worth so much money that, you know, the average person has a Satoshi worth. And the people that bought early all live in like this citadel to be protected from the normies that don't have a ton of Bitcoin because it is so dangerous. I have a hard time thinking that people that have been involved in this and accumulated a lot of these things, if they really ever take off in, in value, and I'm not talking going to 100,000, but a lot more than that, where value is really, really stored in these, even if you have the best cool little you know treasure wallet that is super secure and, I don't know, biometrics or whatever it is, People are still going to cut your finger off to get your biometrics. It's always cat and mouse. Like the, you, be, you invent a better mouse trap, um, somebody will game it. Like that's. I just don't want to be the mouse. Yeah, <laughs> you, just, you heard it here first. GSAS doesn't want to be the mouse. I but, want to be the crypto kitty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right, meow. Meow. <laughs> uh, but I do think there is value in the what Richard Brown calls the I know what I see is what you see problem. Like in most of financial services, what I see might not be the same as what you see, even though you've told me it is. That's a big problem that needs solving across every business sector, government, you name it. Um, and also digital uniqueness. Like the fact that if I send you an MP3, you have an MP3 and I have an MP3 and DRM is nearly impossible. If we have a ledger of this is the only one version version of the Wu-Tang Clan album like that that, that Martin, <laughs> you know that Martin Scarelli owned and that uh, Bill Murray took from Martin Scarelli then like that one copy we can prove that there is only one copy and you are the holder of that one copy now that uniqueness thing that has value in some circles like so those two things are like do you start with that as a thesis and then go figure out where like where can i use these superpowers and where can i use those capabilities and and is there a minimum lovable product or is there something that a customer really wants or somebody really wants that that solve that those problems solve for but anyway i'll get off my soapbox and we'll talk about the swarm.fund so the next story comes from swarm.fund apparently swarm are going to launch new tokens representing equity in coinbase robinhood ripple and Didi. the blockchain for private equity today announced the launch of tokens representing equity in those tech companies allowing investors to purchase security tokens representing fractional shares in private companies the ceo and co-founder said their goal is to democratize investing um, and uh, it's a major step forward in their mission uh, th- now any swarm investor can hold equity uh, in some of today's most prominent tech startups or can they call in well according to coinbase they can't what was really funny was they went out and obviously they didn't bother to really even talk to these companies and say hey we're tokenizing your equity this is great because coinbase came back and said the fuck you are <laughs> um and i think i think ripple was also pushing back on them uh it was very funny because when it came out pompliano uh, was talking about it anthony pompliano who's um, now left twitter interestingly right. um because of all the trolls was was talking about this actually specifically and preston put something up and said uh you know you still can't do it 
it. And then immediately after, uh, he updated it with this article that I'm looking at about Coinbase and Ripple pushing back against it. I mean, if you are selling parts of people's company, whether it's in token or any other form, you should probably ask them if you're allowed to do that because it is their company. Well, and we've seen this before without a blockchain on it. It was called secondmarket.com, and it was known as a great way for people with inside information to go dump a load of shares on the secondary market. Like, it's ripe for abuse. There's all sorts of things kind of go wrong. But I get the argument. Look, if uh, if you have a uh, hundred dollars a month or even fifty dollars a month of savings, ten dollars a month of savings, you know, you've managed to avoid taking two coffees. Like there are, there's only really instant access cash savings accounts that are available and cash savings are a stupid option for retail because you're just losing money like it it, you're just deflating the value of your cash away you might as well just start throwing it out of the window so like i want to hang out next to your window yeah that's kind of weird why did you say that you're gonna be throwing money out of it (laughs) oh right okay i thought you were just stalking me well for both reasons Uh, don't hang out near my window, Colin, please. <laughs> It'll be the window with money coming out of it. Yeah, okay. But, but it, look, there's a need for democratizing access to savings. The goal is right. The implementation is questionable. A hundred percent. And I'm not discounting that any way, shape, or form, but just because it's on a blockchain doesn't give you the right to just be an asshole and try all these things that are just bucket shops. Here, yeah, yeah. All right, stories we did not have time to cover. Um, from felines to football, um, non-functional tokens are crypto's hottest new buzzword. I think they've been around for a little while. Story comes from Coindesk. Um, story from Forbes. No, Bitcoin won't use up all the world's energy. Um, kind of a breakdown or pushback of some of It'll the... It'll be uh, the entire universe's... Or at least 51% of it. Yeah. So um, some analysis of uh, or some different ways to get to how much energy uh, Bitcoin actually uses. A hotly debated topic and favorite of Bitcoin haters everywhere. Oh, it's killing the planet. Let's ignore the fact that tech companies and banks are too. All right. uh, Story from Medium. John Backer's fat protocols aren't new. What blockchain can learn from P2P file sharing, which is a really good read. So, And then the last one, smart contract bug disables icon the ICX token transfers so smart contracts eh colin not so smart indeed all right it's time for tweet of the week tweet 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 it's the tweet of the week (laughs) 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 my god petra just made that sound in the room and it was fantastic (laughs) all right um this was actually the tweet of the week last week but since colin's back and this is his favorite thing in the world it's from former nba star dennis rodman colin go so obviously everybody in the world obviously heard about Donald Trump meeting Kim Jong-un, the, the chairman of North Korea. Wait, that happened? That, apparently. Okay. Apparently. People may not have paid attention that a while ago, Dennis Rodman, who was a, an NBA player, and because Petra loves when we talk about sports and we did not talk about football, awesome, even though it's World Cup time. Dennis Rodman was sponsored years ago to go over to, to North Korea to talk to Kim Jong-un, and he was sponsored by none other than Potcoin, which, for those of you who have been hiding under a rock is a coin built for the marijuana industry, the legalized marijuana industry, uh, mostly in the United States, but elsewhere, I guess, as well. They paid uh, and gave them this stuff. Now they, they put out this, t- Dennis Rodman put out this tweet when it was all happening in Singapore uh, with the President of the United States meeting the chairman of North Korea, said, looking forward to the meeting, incredible success to the whole world to benefit by. Thank you, Potcoin, for supporting my mission. Potcoin has made it. Actually, I think it jumped like 30% of the day when that happened. Wow. Uh, Peace coin is here. Peace has started. Peace has started in Singapore, all thanks to Dennis Rodman. I just love that if you were a hedge fund, you could have put money into Potcoin to bet on macroeconomics and like world peace. Let's just let that hang for a second. <laughs> what you can't see is Colin's arms are held out to either side like Jesus or something. Uh, Jesus. Uh, speaking of um, hanging out, uh, you caught up with uh, Stephen Paley, the partner at Anderson Killey. He promised not to swear as much this time. Oh, well, uh, over to that interview. I'm here with Stephen Paley, excellent fan of, of Guppies, as well as partner and blockchain and virtual currency group co-chair at Anderson Kill. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. So um, today we we chatted. Let's wanted to catch up on Tezos, our favorite uh, our favorite blockchain. Um, saw lots of stuff about EOS as well, and just kind of general what you're hearing from the regulators, what what makes sense, what doesn't, um, because a lot of people are kind of uh, I think either cheerleading what the CFTC says or or accusing the SEC of FUD or whatever. Whatever their their choice term. Yeah, I don't really think the SEC cares if someone accuses it of FUD. It's it's really funny. Like sometimes, um, it's almost like uh, 
there's this crossover between Reddit and uh, like the real world of law and regulators. So did you see John McAfee's thing last week? Yeah. Um, oh. Where he said, uh, basically, it was like, everybody should, you know, call and email Jay Clayton and let him know that I'm going to, I want to, you know, we're going to have an argument on CNBC. I mean, I, I just, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's like, uh, do you remember um, Bizarro World from um, DC Comics, from the old Superman comics? I don't, I don't, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like – you see that and it's like Bizarro World stuff. Then again, we're living in a world where you've got Dennis Rodman and Potcoin in Singapore with the reality TV president meeting with you know the most ruthless dictator in, a, uh, in the world. Um, and that's all happening. So I don't know. I see perfect continuity. Yeah, the, the, honestly, like, I honestly thought that too. When I, I saw the John McAfee thing, I was like, well, that's batshit crazy. And then I thought, well, like in context, I mean, I don't know. At what point did the the headless henchman or horseman come riding through? I, I think that we're about that stage, aren't we? I mean, <laughs> okay. I think we may be past that. I don't know. But so you asked about regulators, and I did have a chance in the last month to visit with some, and it's the real world still exists. And, um, you know, I'd say that uh, most regulators are still taking a kind of sober, normal view of uh, technological development. It, it's uh, hard to take much guidance from out-of-context statements taken from, uh, you know, uh, this or that regulator speaking in a public forum. And what you have to look at is what's actually happening, either in terms of um, regulation, and we're still not seeing much new in, in the area of, of basically regulation creation. Um, and on the other hand, enforcement. I think what people don't understand is the role that regulators play in the United States. You really have two functions. One is to actually create regulations, and regulations are gap fillers for laws. So Congress will create a law and Congress will, will create legislation which will go to the president. The president will sign it. It will become law. And the law will be very, very broad, but it will say that uh, it will give uh, an agency, which is a, a part of the executive branch, part of the executive branch, it will give an agency the power authority to kind of fill it in. So on the one hand, you've got law creation, basically. And on the other hand, you have law enforcement. For the most part, what we've seen from regulators in the United States is uh, enforcement activity. We've seen uh, a little bit of regulatory interpretation, but we haven't seen too much sort of um, new law creation, if you will. So I want to kind of delve into that. And I was having a discussion with Preston Byrne, our, our favorite marmot, about one of these topics you brought up. And he, he talked about, in his opinion, uh, that, and I don't know if you agree or differ on this, but that there was no delegation, meaning in some agencies, Congress directly or indirectly says, right, this agency, in, in addition to being the police of, of this particular domain, they also are allowed to kind of make their own rules would you agree that the SEC or the other regulators of finance, so the CFTC at the federal level, are or are not delegated in their ability to create new rules? Well, no, of course they are. Both agencies have power to promulgate regulations. Now, the question is, are they making new law? No, the regulations that they promulgate have to be within the ambit of their statutory authority. But all you have to do is go to the Code of Federal Regulations and look at the rules that they've created. So so then my follow-on question, because I think that's, that's a very helpful premise to put it in, is do they need to create new laws to properly regulate these new things that are ICOs, that are cryptocurrencies? I'm not sure. So there, I think that's a, that's a question of, that's a policy question. I think I'm kind of ambivalent when it comes to creation of new laws to allow for um, or to help ease token sales. I guess the question is why? And on the one hand, the, the policy argument that you hear people make is, well, it's too difficult for the little guy or the little gal to invest and make money, right? That's the, the problem with the current statutory or uh, investment laws and investor protections in the United States. They're too, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Too onerous? Yeah, they're onerous and, you know, they, they impose um, unreasonable restrictions on, uh, you know, smaller investors. And so rich people get, you know, all of the good deals. And, you know, I don't know, maybe there's some truth to that as a matter of policy. On the other hand, you know, you got to remember the reason why we have, you know, the, the two main pieces of U.S. securities laws, the 33 Act and the 34 Act, all happened in the wake of the Depression, which was caused in part by, um, you know, unfair securities uh, practices by big people against little 
single people. So I, I don't know. It's if you are um, a hard libertarian, you're probably going to say um, we don't need no stinking government providing people with protection. People can protect themselves. If your views are different, you're going to you know have a different view. As of now, the laws are what they are, right? I mean, we have well-established securities laws in the United States with well-established investor protections, and the SEC has made it clear that they're going to apply those. There's not a lot of ambiguity. If Congress wants to change the law to create maybe, you know, maybe something like a sophisticated investor exemption for blockchain-based investments. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying it is. it's certainly a possibility. I recall there is some sort of um, sophisticated investor exemption that's been discussed. I don't know what the status of that is. I was going to say on that on that point. I, I know a lot of people have also brought up the the comment that um, sophisticated investors is is based off your track record and in investing and your your own net wealth or investable wealth. And a lot of people felt that they were qualified not based on those criteria, but are on on a more technical basis. Do you think there'd be any scope to consider that as as maybe a qualification as a quote unquote sophisticated investor? I believe that that's a proposal that's out there. I don't know what its status is in um, in Congress, but I, I want to say that that's something that's been proposed. Um, I don't know where it is in the legislative pipeline. You know, if you go back, I was thinking about this yesterday. If you go back to when was the Ethereum uh, sale? Two thousand fourteen. You know, if you wanted to buy Ether, you had to know how to get Bitcoin. It wasn't as easy at the time. You had to be able to get Bitcoin. You had to be able to send it from a private wallet. It required a decent amount of technical sophistication that, main, you know, there weren't a lot of Main Street investors who were buying into it. Its status, like what it was, was probably not entirely clear to the general public. There might be something to the argument that for, that might fit into the rubric of highly technical, I'm not sure. As a matter of policy, I can see that, I can see some uh, persuasion in that context. It's pretty clear that Bitcoin um, will be treated by American securities uh, regulators and by courts as money for purposes of uh, of um, a Howey analysis to determine whether or not something was an investment contract. But I'm not sure that in 2014, people, um, Main Street investors, really uh, had any idea what this stuff was. So that might be that might be a scenario that fits within um, some sort of technical expertise um, exemption. Another, you know, there's an, another something else to think about is the um, sort of FinCEN and money transmission. And if you strictly construe the definition of money transmission, it can include a lot of things which are maybe in in spirit, not really what Congress was um, trying to protect in the context of the Bank Secrecy Act. So take, for example, interledger protocols, communicate basically data transfer, data transmutation between a, a main chain and a side chain. I can see the need for some statutory or regulatory clarification in those contexts. And I, I, I see a clear argument for stifling of um, innovation in that context. I'm not sure that our securities laws. I'm not convinced that uh, enforcement of our current securities securities laws in the United States. I don't see how they really stifle innovation. Maybe they make it difficult for people to raise capital. No, and I think that's an important distinction between the, the actual functionality of of what these projects are at least publicly stating that they're trying to deliver, and um, what people are actually doing to raise money. And I think we've long advocated that people are able to separate the the phase where I'm trying to pull up a bunch of money in here in a common enterprise, whether you call it decentralized or not, it's a common enterprise to build and deliver this network. And and by the way, Ethereum was was developed exactly this way. And now we can have a discussion as the facts stand today. Is it still in that phase or is it something else? Commonly, we hear about utility tokens here. So on this particular topic, um, we conversed a little bit about Ethereum being classed as a security. What is your view on that? For better or for worse, I'm not a court. <laughs> I'm not a regulator. I have my own view of what that offering was in 2014. I might actually be persuaded that there should be some sort of technical or temporal exemption. What is it now? I think, and you know, this is pure speculation. Um, it's not like Jay Clayton is uh, calling me and telling me what he thinks. It's pure speculation, but I think because of the pervasiveness of Ether now, and probably because of a desire not to hurt retail investors, I don't think that something will happen which will damage or limit the tradability 
of, of Ether. I mean, the primary function of Ether, let's just be clear, to date has been to serve as a, essentially, it's basically, it's speculation. It's been a proxy for cash and it's allowed a lot of people or maybe of just a very few people to make a lot of money. But at this point, lots of retail investors hold it. If you called it a security and you place significant restrictions on its tradability, that would probably have an impact on its value. And if the SEC saw that and realized that that might uh, cause the value to drop significantly, it might have some concerns about doing that. I don't. But again, like I, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't think the law is that. I think the law is pretty black and white, and it's pretty clear what the purpose of that sale was and um, what people expected from it. But I'm just some guy. I, you know, I don't have any. I'm not a judge. The, the, the really complicated part about the way these token sales have been used is, I think the last time we spoke, I, I pointed this out. I think it bears remembering. The United States is a great country. I, I'm very fond of it. You know, I'm a, a proud American. I, I like being here and I like our laws. Um, I'm a lawyer. I took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. I'm, I think we've got a great legal system. But there are 180, 181 countries in the world, uh, all of which have political their own political subdivisions. I have no idea what the law is in the rest of the world. The, the real, I think what we may see in order for this technology to take off and to work a as a financial or investment tool, people might may start developing things that are jurisdiction focused, right? Like like real software, like real international software, where you build things for particular countries. Which which is a a big change from I mean at least the the aims and goals of of Ethereum and and of Bitcoin at least as they've been articulated. Go back twenty or thirty years and look at or twenty years and look at the World Wide Web. But just because you can throw up a website and it can touch 180 countries doesn't mean that it makes sense to sell your widgets in 180 countries without figuring out what the laws are in those countries. This is no different than um, the questions people had to ask 20 years ago or 30, you know, 25 years ago um, when you started seeing websites being thrown up. Just because Apple can sell computers everywhere in the world doesn't mean that Apple doesn't make sure its terms and conditions aren't, um, you know, tailored for the different countries where they import and export. It's complicated. You can either deal with it or you can ignore it. And if you ignore it, you end up, um, you know, paying the piper later. Indeed. Speaking of paying the piper, can I switch us Back to our, our conversation of Tezos. You, you've been following quite publicly on your Twitter feed a lot about what's developed. Uh, for those who haven't been paying attention, could you kind of recap? Since we spoke in, I believe it was in late October 2017, they had just gone through. There was a division between the Brightmans, their company, and the foundation. Can you kind of take us from there? What's what's developed and where are we today? So, right. So... Brightman's created this company called DLS, what is it, Distributed Ledger Systems, Dynamic Ledger Solutions, Inc., excuse me. I happen to be looking at something that was just filed in the case. Yeah, so they created this company, and they decided that they wanted the community to be, um, they wanted to have some sort of community representation of their thing that they were building. So they went to Switzerland, they created a Swiss foundations, Swiss foundation, the Tezos foundation or Tezos Stiftung, um, which is based uh, in Switzerland. And uh, the, the foundation did a, um, depending on the side that you're on, they either did a token sale or they did a token contribution event. The idea was that if you gave them money, they were going to use it to build, um, the foundation was going to use it to build the Tezos blockchain. And maybe if they felt like it someday and the community agreed, there'd be an allocation of tokens, Tezzies. And Tezzies, um, it sounds like it should be a Disney dinosaur character. I think I've said that in the past. So kind of a cute name. So this is this is the idea, at least that it was argued that um, I give money to UNICEF uh, for, you know, feeding the children or whatever it is, and they give me a tote bag. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, it, maybe that's true. Maybe that was the intent. Maybe it wasn't. But so far, uh, I don't think anybody's gotten tokens yet. It looks like it's going to happen. Meanwhile, back in California, um, a bunch of people filed class action lawsuits. They were... Um, they're now, uh, for the most part, consolidated in federal court in the Northern District of California and San Francisco. One of the class actions was sent back to uh, state court. So you've got sort of two parallel class actions in California, one in state court, one which is five or six, I can't remember, lawsuits that are all before one federal judge in California. And that case is in a, those are 
basically securities class actions. The um, plaintiffs are saying, look, I, we know you claim this was some sort of you know voluntary contribution, but if you look beyond your, the words, this was clearly a securities offering into the United States. And the plaintiffs, um, basically, I'm, I'm actually looking at something they just filed. This indirect structure, I'm quoting, this indirect structure was arranged solely for the purpose of distancing the Tezos ICO from the U.S. and allowing defendants to avoid the reach of U.S. securities laws. However, at all times, the center of gravity of the Tezos ICO is firmly planted in the, in the U.S. So basically, <clears throat> the defendants are saying, look, the sale was done by the Swiss business uh, which had nothing to do, and it's totally independent, and had nothing to do with the United States. It's independently controlled, and uh, you can't bring it into the United States, right? So they're arguing that uh, the uh, U.S. courts don't have jurisdiction because the sale was done by a Swiss business, and uh, the plaintiffs, and I'm just looking at their response right now, are saying, give me a break, right? <laughs> this was all, your entire purpose in doing this uh, and setting up the Swiss entity was to be able to sell uh, securities into the United States. And although you claim that this was sort of a contribution and that people were getting tote bags, uh, that's really not what the evidentiary record will show. So meanwhile, you, you asked what happened. So there was a fight between the uh, founders of DLS, the Brightmans, and the uh, initial uh, head of the foundation, a guy named Johann Gevers. They ended up deposing, kicking out Gevers. They ended up getting a new board in place. It appears that um, the, this, this foundation and the Brightmans are um, sort of cooperating. Though I just saw in the last couple of days, although they're not fighting like they used to fight, apparently the Tezos Foundation is now requiring as a condition to receiving Tezis that um, contributors go through um, – a full KYC process, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, so my suspicion is, um, I, I actually think this is a very clever move. I think what they're doing is they're going to try and weed out Americans. And uh, they're probably going to say, if you're American, you don't get any tezzies. So a lot of people aren't going to go through KYC. Uh, either they, they can't or they won't. There are plenty, a lot of people who contributed money thinking that this was going to be a fairly anonymous process or procedure. When they realize they're going to have to turn over their identity documentation to a third party, they're going to balk for a variety of reasons. So the uh, foundation is going to be able to keep a substantial amount of money without issuing tokens because some people won't go through the process. I suspect... If they discover Americans, they're going to say, no, thanks. We're not going to give Tezzies to Americans. And, and that may actually help uh, an argument that they're making in court that there's no jurisdiction over U.S. persons. But what's interesting, too, is from a sort of a, a wargaming it out standpoint, what's the argument then of U.S. investors? What? Some sort of, you took my money, but you're demanding, but I refuse to go through. If you're American, you're going to have to go through the KYC like anybody else in order to get your tokens. I guess the question is going to be what the uh, U.S. plaintiff's arguments are going to be if they don't receive tokens because they're Americans. I mean, interestingly, deciding not to give people tokens is consistent with the argument this whole thing was just uh, fundraising and contribution. I, I think Mr. Draper would probably be pissed off if he doesn't get his tokens, though. Well, surely he'd go through it. He, in, in all cases, he would he would fall under some kind of exemption, wouldn't he? I'm, I don't know. I, I'd imagine that he, he's either structured this under his venture capital fund or he himself would be a, a, a sophisticated investor that can invest in more or less anything as long as it's not, you know, I, I would just, I could be wrong. Yeah, maybe they'll do some after the fact. Maybe they'll do some sort of after the fact filing or uh, seek an exemption. Maybe they'll do a rescission offer. I think it's clever, though. Um, and actually... I don't think it's the wrong move to do KYC at this point. So then here's the question, though. If if you're willing to concede, if, if I'm uh, the Brightmans and the, the Tezos Foundation, and I'm willing to concede that today the unlaunched product um, is e-security and giving you these things, these Tezis, would be construed as a securities offer. Zoom zoom forward 12 months from now, Tezos is, is launched. Everything's peachy. Everybody's happy. And and I, an American, decide, hey, I want to go buy these Tezis because I actually want to use them as a utility. Can I do that? Or is this still fall under the they were securities, so they are securities kind of argument? I'm not sure. I don't think anything's going to be wrapped up in a year. I think, A, I don't believe the class action litigation will be wrapped up in a year. A year from now, we may be uh, in the middle of um, class certification arguments. 
and I, I have no personal knowledge of the, any regulatory investigation that's going on. I do recall seeing something that suggested that the SEC is investigating this offering. I, I don't, this is a pure guess, by the way, but I would be shocked if you could buy Tezzy's on any U.S. exchange in a year. I don't see that happening. Again, I may be totally wrong. Um, I'm not a uh, I'm not a currency speculator, but I don't see anything being wrapped up in that time frame. This was a huge fundraising event, and there is a you know a decent amount of evidence suggesting that it maybe people maybe it was a securities offering. It would take a I think it'll take a while to unwind some of this. Don't don't expect to be able to buy the stuff in the U.S. in a year, and not at least not in a centralized exchange. No, centrally. And and I think the other thing that's kind of an interesting question on top of that is, you know, what do they do about all the people who, like myself, are, are Americans but you know don't fit the mold of being residents? Um, and there's there's lots of companies that would also be classed as as Americans who may have this stuff in there. It's a good question. I don't know. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> there's lots of unknowns here, and I think I think that you know that's kind of the point. Uh, no, nobody really knows. Um, we're sitting here. Two guys drinking coffee. I've just gone through. So I read the motions to dismiss that were filed in the Tezos uh, case. Um, and I've just read through uh, the first response. And this is a response by, who is this by? This is this is a response to the Tezos um, Foundation's motion to dismiss. And you'll recall that you've got a bunch of different defendants, people who are sued in the United States. You've got the Brightmans. You've got DLS. You've got Traper. Bitcoin Suisse, you've got the foundation. The foundation has all of the money, right? And in fact, uh, Arthur Brightman on Reddit, he people somebody complained to him about uh, KYC, and he said um, it basically it's out of my hands. And you know, but he said I can't believe you don't have any control. And he said I know basically, right? So, but this Tezos Foundation, uh, they filed a motion to dismiss. They said, look, we're not enough connections in the United States, and it would be inconvenient. They have decent lawyers. I thought the papers that they filed were good. I just read the response by plaintiffs. I don't. I would be really surprised if the Tezos Foundation was um, was dismissed from the class action litigation. Uh, plaintiffs have a um, solid counsel. Their their briefing is good, and they made some about their arguments in response to the motion to dismiss. Uh, was strong and basically, you know, what they said was, you sold, to, you know, you sold into the United States. Uh, you got tons of contacts here, um, and under the uh, under U.S. case law, under sort of the jurisdictional test for uh, U.S. courts, um, there, there's more than ample evidence that uh, supports uh, you being hauled into court here. So I don't think that I don't think that litigation is going to go away, and it, it's a little bit of a cloud. Um, over the um, over the token itself, I thought it was funny. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, some people decided to create file a petition that they're going to file with the judge, saying that uh, the class action litigation should be dismissed because they don't agree with it. Did you see that one? It's kind of it's bizarre world shit. I mean, that's just not. How, it's like you've got a lawsuit um, seeking class action status. Um, there are the defendants are represented by a lawyer. It's not a class action yet. Um, there will be a motion to get the thing certified, and then you've got these defendants whose lawyers will file briefs explaining why um, the thing doesn't fit into the into the rubric or, uh, or model of a class action. Like it just people think that uh, some U.S. federal judge is going to read a petition filed by a bunch of random people. It's just crazy. It's like, it's, this is like this is like Reddit meeting law, right? You know, I mean, that might make sense. It seems to sort of fit the... <laughs> I think it makes a lot of sense now. It kind of fit the context, right? Yeah, the Brightmans could move to Pyongyang, why not? I mean, golly, pot coin. Did you buy pot coin, Colin? Of course I did not buy pot coin. I mean, I guess you're not supposed to talk about your bag anyway, right? You never talk about your bag. The first rule about bag holding, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I've got a huge guppy bag, but they're, they're not freely they're, they're not freely transferable. Uh, so I, I have to say too, while you have me, I just want to be clear so people understand the guppy thing. Like, do you know what you know where the, the origin of my fascination with guppies comes from? This is match pool, right? Yes. I, I, like every couple of weeks, somebody's like Steve, like you know. Dude, what is it with you and fish? Like, like pe- people don't understand that this may be the longest troll in crypto history. I'm still amazed that people spent $5 million to buy cryptographic fish for um, some sort of so-called decentralized dating application in which the white paper says ladies get in free. 
right? But basically, every time I mention guppies, I'm thinking about that. I, I, I do want to challenge your assumption that this is the longest troll in crypto history because Dogecoin, I think, I think is verifiably longer. <laughs> but true, and it's profitable too. So like my trolls and my wife will confirm this are completely unprofitable. No, you just get me responding to you with stupid fish. <laughs> I mean, basically, it all comes down to like, to guppy gifts and my family's like you know what are you doing you're you're a trial lawyer with 20 years of experience so like why are you talking about guppy gifts yeah you you know a good entrepreneur would would tokenize these things <laughs> well somebody already ha- oh the, the the tweets are guppies so, see that's the thing Pe- people say yeah people say to me you should you should tokenize the fish you should do a guppy offering it's like people you don't understand the- this has already happened. My comedy is totally lost on all of you. You know, a great artist is never recognized for their art, right? That's right. A prophet is never understood in his own country. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Um, where can people find out more about you? So you could go to the National Aquarium and go to the Guppy exhibit. No, you can, uh, you know, you, you, you can check out my Twitter. It's at Stephen D. Pally. You know, I do. I, I practice law. I've got a. I've got a web page um, at the Anderson Kill website. I'm on the old LinkedIn under my real name. So you know, check me out. I am. I, I am. A, I'm kind of hilarious. And if you like fish, I'm a good follow. I'm. I'm an avid follower. Thank you very much. All right, thanks very much to both Colin and Stephen there. From Eos to Tezos, we definitely got it all this week. <laughs> and yes, I just stole a line you said before we started recording. Again. It was on a blockchain. It's non-fungible. <laughs> <laughs> You're non-fungible. This is true. <laughs> non-fungible plat. All right, uh, NFP tokens. <laughs> I think that's non-farm payrolls. Wow. Coincidence? <laughs> I think not. All right, just before we go, um, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency and consultancy who help banks, asset managers, FMIs, or anybody with a challenge delivering product uh, to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialize your project and get that minimum lovable product that customers just love, or just have a speaker for your next event, we hope that you'll get in touch. You can find our website at 11FS.com. And... Uh, Colin, where can people find out more about you? On on the Twitter at uh, at Colin G Platt. You you need a, a GSAS handle at some point. You right? know, I tried. The guy doesn't respond to me. Damn it! Damn damn that other GSAS. Damn the doppelganger. Alrighty, and I have to of course thank the amazing production team here at Eleven FS. Laura Watkins, our producer. Thank you, Laura. Petrit Berisha, our assistant producer, and uh, and Ollie Judge, who's in the room. Uh, Ollie, who's <laughs> 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 just randomly in the room. He heard there was beer, so he showed up. Thank you, Ollie, uh, and thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so so much. And spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to. We'll have more blockchain insider next week. Goodbye.